I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know him. And I was wandering. It wasn't good. And I knew that it wasn't good. I used to feel empty and I just continued living that way. In uh, 2008, I met Giselle. You know, have this wonderful person come into my life and uh, still didn't want to leave a lot of the things that I was doing before. I just wanted to do things for me. I was very selfish and uh, wanted to go hang out with my buddies. And I used to want to go get high and I wanted to always be, just kind of ignore whatever Giselle wanted to do. And I kind of just wanted to do my own thing. We had our ups and downs and we ended up moving in together. And then uh, I proposed to Giselle to get married. And she said yes. Over the next couple of years, we had been just on and off, just fighting. The environment in the home was just not good. We had a huge um, fight over something very, very meaningless. You know, she sat me down and she basically said that this is too difficult for her. There's no support for her emotionally. And it's, uh, it's a very abusive relationship. At that point, we had given our wedding invites to a lot of people. And so in April, um, we decided to cancel our wedding. I think that's this is the feeling when your world just comes crashing down and everything's just kind of upside down. Giselle said, I'm gonna move back to my mom's. And she basically said, hey, look, you're a Christian. You should go to church. That day I ended up coming to Village. Everything Mark said that day was talking directly to me. And I remember leaving the church just completely just shattered, uh, left in tears went home, really had time to think about whatever was said. And really what he was talking about is just to stop wandering and to not trade temporary pleasures for eternal pleasures that God offers. And he talked about how darkness is blown away by the light. It's not just about stopping sin from our life, it's about redeeming it. I really uh, felt the urge to call up people from my life and, you know, I wanted to call to apologize for some of the things I had done previously. So started calling up friends, called up my brother. It, it created this whole mo moment in my life where I realized that all these people that I had done wrong to, there is a way to come back from it. And it was a very emotional time for me. At that point, I had another voice in my head telling me to go towards God, to, to seek out God, to seek His will instead of going towards what I had always done, which always failed me, I decided this time I was gonna to choose to go towards God. In about six or seven months, you know, Giselle and I started to get close as friends together again. We decided that we would do Alpha together. And then after that, um, we decided that we were gonna get married again. This time, everything was, it was just completely different. Like, God was in our life. God was the center of our relationship. We really kind of gave Him that. Everything that was wrong before got healed, and um, life has just never been the same again. We still have our ups and downs, but He can take something that's broken and He can fix it. Hello, welcome to church this morning. Uh, my name is Michael, and I have the privilege of leading youth ministry here at our Surrey location. And uh, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to go through three verses just at the end of chapter 9. And uh, for those of you who have been here for a while, um, I just look at uh, today, and I look at all the volunteers, and I look at the staff and the people running around here, and uh, we have an honor and a privilege of being at a church 
that empowers people in the youth ministry. I love the fact that I get to work with young people all the time who love and desire Jesus. And uh, this is an incredible place to be. And so if you are somebody at any of the locations, I would just encourage you, even on this beautiful day, to go and encourage somebody who is a volunteer here, who has worked in beautiful ways. And uh, if you are a parent of a youth student, I would encourage you to get them involved in the youth ministries at any location, on a Sunday or on a midweek. It's a beautiful thing. Love your children. And we hope that we can partner with you guys through their development and in their life. We're going to read through a couple different verses here today uh, that Paul's written to this church in Corinth, and it starts here in verse 24. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself shall be disqualified. Paul's main illustration is of an athlete in, in different fields in different ways. I remember being in seventh grade at Bear Creek Park here in Surrey, and uh, I was uh, running in a track meet with the rest of the schools, and I thought I was like the coolest person in the world. I was going to get my badge, my ribbon, and it's 400 meters around the track there, and so I was participating in the 800-meter race, and I remember getting ready. I'm just, I'm, I'm on the blocks. I'm looking at everyone like they are going to eat my dust, right? Like it was going to be incredible, and so as I'm going to do that, I, I, I'm ready, I'm getting a little bit nervous, and the, the, the gun goes off. And so I'm running, like absolute, like the, it was the greatest run anyone has ever run at this point for the first lap. And the second lap went, and I was like, wow, I didn't know your lungs could be on fire this much. Like, what happens? And, and everyone is trailing. Like, I am cruising. My whole school has never cheered so loud. Go, Michael, go. You're going to win it for us, finally. We were like a small inner city school. We needed this. And so I'm running, and as I'm going, I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And probably midway through the second lap, I, I just sat down. I sat down. I was like, no, this is too much. And everyone's cheers went to absolute booze. I've never... Hated athletics more in my life until that point. Paul's illustration is exactly that. It's a race. It's a run. It's an athlete trying to finish the job and not to be like my example, but to be an example that's a bit different. One who runs not to sit down in the middle of the track, but one who finishes in first place. It's brilliant for us to look at this. And the reason why this is so important is because our culture doesn't have this kind of a mentality. What Paul is, is saying to these individuals is he's saying to them, it's a life of self-control, of, of, of pushing back your desires for something much greater, to have something that will last. Our culture has a very different set of values. Here are seven things that I feel like for us is kind of uh, the environment that we are living in, that your kids are growing up in, that you at workplaces are in all the time. This is how we think as a culture. One, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, self and self-expression. Two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the internet, will motor this progression towards Utopia. Four, 
The primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about the issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Five, humans are inherently good. Six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Limiting your choice is not what our culture believes in. But there is a way that gets to us. I, I in youth ministry have conversations about this all the time with students who are growing up in a culture where a word, this one specific word that me growing up, I never had, but now is implanted in the, the mind of every student. Anxiety. Our culture is defined in such a way, it's like uh, before I got married, my mother-in-law kept telling me about, about my wife in a really funny way. She said, uh, uh, when we were little, when she was little, her mother would give her a dollar at the dollar store and she would walk in and she, she'd walk in with absolute joy, like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And every single time she ended up crying. It was overwhelming, all the options terrified her. She had no idea where to go. And we live in a society where everything is available to you in an instant, whatever website you want to watch, whatever movie, whatever music, anything, every opportunity, every option, how you want to marry, who you want to marry, what vocation you want to do, what city you want to live in into the world. Everything is afforded to you. This is not how it has been. Self-definition, self-expression, the amount of choices that there are in the world has not left to mobilization, has not left us to movement in a beautiful way, it has left us to a paralysis of options and anxiety overwhelming our culture. So Paul's definition of an athlete should hit every single one of us deeply in the heart to look at ourselves and go, is this the water that I'm swimming in? How is this going to challenge my heart? Because I look at my life and I go, this language of discipline is hard for me. I remember the beginning of the year, me and my wife are sitting down and we're talking and I'm going, what's the one thing that I want to have changed? And I said, discipline over and over again. It hits me in a tough way. I look at myself from this year to last year. I'm 20 pounds heavier. Lack of dis discipline. Not controlling what I'm eating. Not working out. And let's just, okay, sure, weight is one thing, but what about spiritual life? I look at my life and I've had issues through this whole year going, man, I'm not praying consistently enough. What is this facade of standing on a stage with a microphone telling people how to be more Jesus-like and I'm not spending time in his presence? Discipline. I hope you do not hear this as a tone of do better, do better, do better. I hope you hear this as a tone as we need this that Paul is doing something for us communally as a church, not as individuals who just want self-expression every way, but self-denial is the way of the kingdom. Paul is gonna go off on a long list of words and actions of effort. And I think one word for effort is important. It's said by uh, a man named Dallas Willard, that grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. It's effort. It's striving, it's moving towards. This is not going to come passively. One writer writes it this way. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience 
and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. This action, this, this effort that we are moving towards has to show us something because if we look deeply into our hearts, it's pretty messed up. There are some things there. One man named Jonathan Edwards put it this way, that we have two ways of, of doing an action. One would be a true virtue, that the motivation of our hearts in any action is for godliness and for Jesus and for his work and the furthering of the kingdom. But most often, we operate in common virtue. That the actions of what we do is not based on loving Jesus or loving the kingdom or furthering him, but really it's in our hearts, this motivation of sin pushing us and driving us to do. Most often, it's seen in two ways, fear and pride. Let's, let's, let's describe it this way, that you go to church and you believe in Jesus. And in high school or in university, you tell yourself, I'm not going to go and sleep with my significant other because what would the people in my community think about me? The limiting factor of you not doing that action is not because I love Jesus, because I want to further his kingdom, because I want to be pure as he is pure. It's motivated by fear. What are they going to think of me? Or how about you at the party with all of your friends or you at that, you know, that, that event and everybody else is drinking significant amounts or, or people are, are taking in drug use and you say to yourself, I'm not going to do those things, not because, man, Jesus is Lord, because God is good, but because I don't want to be like one of them. It's pride. And most human action is motivated by those two things, fear and pride, the sinfulness motivates us in ways that we are not aware of. That for men, it's pretty interesting that we see progress as pitting sin and sin in the gladiator arena of our own ego. The main sin that we would deal with is something like lust. And after lust, we, we move into a different direction. I find it this way. Have you ever been in the airplane and you're sitting in the economy class and you go up to the counter and the, the lady says to you, and, and you know, you know, economy class, like you are the brethren, we are like sitting by the bathrooms, like, you know what, we have the lowest ticket and we're proud of it. And you walk up to the counter lady and she goes, hey, we've upgraded you to business and everything about your mentality changes. Like everybody in economy is now like, oh, peasant, do not try to use our bathroom, right? Everything changes for you immediately. It's like, oh, as soon as I just moved up a rank, who are, don't even, right? Men operate in the same way. They fight lust, not with godliness, not with Jesus, not striving after him, but they battle lust with self-righteousness. Have you ever noticed that when a man has defeated that sin in their life, they move to, I can't believe you're still dealing with that. It's not motivated by godliness. It's not an effort towards Jesus. It's sin versus sin. Or more generally, let's say for, let's say for the women, how often does fear and anxiety control your hearts? You're thinking about different situations over and over again, and your counteraction to that is not Jesus or the word or keeping in step with the spirit, but it's manipulation and control. That you fighting sin in your, or your own heart has nothing to do with Jesus, but it's sin versus sin in the gladiator arena of ego. And what we say to ourselves is this is progress. I think what Paul is saying is that looks like something very, very different. 
What I think we first have to realize is that when this effort is being explained to us throughout the rest of this passage, it is not action for Jesus' acceptance of us. It's very different. If I'm at home and I am notorious, notorious for leaving the towels on the floor, right? And all the wives said, amen. And I just leave them all over the place. It's wet, gross towels, they're all over the floor. If my wife comes up to me and says, hey, can you pick up your towel? I'm not going towards the towel and picking it up going, hopefully if I do this, she's gonna love me. Oh man, if I just go and wash the dishes or vacuum the home, like she's gonna love me. No. The reason why I'm motivated towards the action is not because I'm moving towards love, it's because I'm coming from it. That's where this effort is showing to us. So when Paul exclaims to us these verses, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all members run, all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. He's motivating us to action. He's moving us not going to a place where we are going to earn love, but going to a place where we are coming from love. The Bible describes it this way, 2 Peter 1, 3 to 7. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, from where you are coming from, from promise, from grace, from mercy, from love, for this very reason, make every effort. From love, make every effort. Run, run, so you get to the finish line. Run, so you get to the goal. So what's the goal? Wealth, comfort, joy, relaxation. What's the goal? For Paul and the writer of Hebrews, it's this. That therefore, since we are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus is the goal. He is where we are running towards. And you have to imagine what Paul is even describing this as. We've been working through this whole, um, they've sacrificed this food to idols and Paul is trying to work it out. And he brings out this random athlete illustration as a reminder for us that sacrifice from love is important in everyday life. Sacrifice from love is exactly what we need. Because this kind of idea of giving everything we can and sacrificing is, is, is absolutely core to the heart of the Christian following Jesus. That we are running towards Jesus because we've already obtained him and we are still running to him. Tozer describes this as the paradox of love, that we are chasing after the thing that we already have. We are running towards him. The effort is for him. That God has not saved you to lie on the track. He has not saved you to sit on the edge of the pool with your feet in the water. God has not saved you for these things, but he has saved you to spend yourself to the glory of the Son, that you are not your own, that you are bought with a price and glorify him with your body. Jonathan Edwards once again describes that all of the commandments could be resolved to this word. With all my might, with everything I have, 
to strive and to work. The Bible describes the effort in this way throughout the New Testament. Uh, Luke 13, strive to enter by the narrow gate. John 6, labor for the food that endures to eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord. Galatians 6, let us not be weary in well-doing for we shall reap if we do not faint. Ephesians 5, redeem the time for the days are evil. Philippians 3, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Titus 2, Christ gave himself to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. Hebrews 6, show earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope to the end. 1 Peter 1, love one another earnestly from the heart. Strive, labor, abound, be zealous, be earnest, run like the winner runs. Go. It's Christian passion, it's Christian zeal, it's a love motivated by Jesus that you just continue to go. This is exactly how it works because all too often we at the church look at an athlete. Imagine an athlete. They never once question themselves, how far do I have to go to just put in minimal effort for the task at hand? Michael Phelps is not going, how much can I do the minimum of in practice to win the gold medal? That's never the thought. It's maximum output. It's the most amount of effort that I can going towards the goal that I am looking towards. But we so often in the church do the opposite. It's the question all through university and high school that we get asked all the time. How far is too far sexually? That is not maximal output. That is minimum effort. We just do enough. It's the overconsumption of wine every night. It's the gossip in the prayer circles. We try to get as close to sin without actually participating in it. And I'm asking you, what does it look like for you to live the other way? An athlete with maximal effort, not a Christian with the minimum. What will make me most useful for the kingdom? What will stir up my zeal for God most? What will intensify my earnestness in prayer? What will trigger more hunger for God's word? What will strengthen my longing to love? And what will fan the flames of the passion that I have for Jesus in my heart for holiness? Paul is saying, run with discipline. Live a life of discipline. Just like an athlete trains and a musician practices, Christians should do so much more. Pray, repent of sin, read their Bible, live in community, to do this every day, habitually disciplining themselves to run the race well. This is the goal. And so many of us are doing this by our own effort. Has anybody not uh, done physical activity for a while and decided, oh, I can just go back to my college days and you go out there, you might play a volleyball game or you might go for a long run or you might play soccer and you were the guy with a hamstring. You're like, oh I, just, oh, I don't know what happened to me. And you think you could just do what you used to do and you come in and you're like, oh, I, for sure. And you come out of this going, why did I effort? Dorothy, you should have told me not. You know what I mean? Like you're, at, you're so mad. We quickly jump into, like, of course I can do that. No training, no, no, no practice, nothing. I'm just going to jump right back into the routine. Spiritually, how often do we do the same thing? My favorite joke on January 1st is this is the most people that will ever read the Bible this year. You know what I mean? Like, how many times have you read Genesis chapter 1? How many times? It's your most read passage in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to do it. Right? And then you overachieve the first day. And you're like, Genesis, the reading plan says Genesis chapter one. Dorothy, let's hit six. Right? 
and you go hard first day. Genesis 1, you're halfway through Genesis. January 1, you're halfway through Genesis. Slowly, it just depletes. It depletes. It depletes. But eventually, spring break, I haven't even thought about the Bible. Discipline. I try to live my life in a way where I ask myself in every which manner, I do not want to do anything, whether it's ministry, my life at home, that would be successful if the Spirit of God did not show up. It's effort. I do not want the youth ministry to grow because of successful plans and systems. I want the youth ministry to grow because the Spirit of God has his hand on what we're doing. I do not want to be a good husband because I buy the gifts and plan the date nights. I wanna be a good husband because the Spirit of God is on our marriage. I do not want to be successful in anything, anything, unless the Spirit of God shows up. So by our efforts, And this run, I know I've said it in such serious terms, but it is not begrudging submission that if the Spirit is on us through the run to go to Jesus, then what does the Spirit offer to us? A couple different things. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, beautiful reactions to what the Spirit gives to us. And so often we're like, ah, read the Bible. Ah, care for someone as if it's begrudging submission. But joy, joy to follow Jesus. That a sacrifice for these Corinthians is not one of, I cannot believe I have to do this, but it is sacrificing out of love. Think about this and how easy it would be for you to give up the drinks with the boys after work for your child. Simple. It's simple. It's out of love. Sacrifice looks, might be hard. It might be difficult, but it is worth it. And what Paul's exclamation to these people is, look at the people around you in the same way. If it's causing them to stumble, if it's causing them to freak out, just give it up because love will make this thing worth it. The joy of the spirit is given to you. Verse 26, Paul describes it this way. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Beating the air is really interesting. Paul's description of his discipline in his life, um, it continues in 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. I lest, af- uh, lest after preaching ourselves, I myself should be disqualified. The, the discipline word is hupo uh, piazzo. It means, uh, it means to uh, give a black eye to, to discipline something so much that you give it a black eye. That is how severe he wants to control the situation with discipline and self-control, that he is giving himself to the Corinthian church in such a way where I have absolute discipline, I have absolute control. John Calvin summarizes the Christian life as self-denial, that in other words, life is not a game of no lasting consequences, that the way we live our lives has eternal significance. Life is a proving ground where we prove who we are, whom we trust, and what we cherish. It's the eternal life, the upward call, that all of these things hang on what our life says about who we are, whom we trust, and what we love. Make no mistake, life is not a place for proving whether your strength is better than God's. 
Life is a place for proving whose strength you actually trust, yours or his. Life is not a place for proving the power of your intelligence to know truth. It's a place for proving the power of God's grace to show truth. Life is not demonstrating that you have a litany of good choices and you will make them by your force, but it's a field for showing how the beauty of Christ takes us captive and constrains us to choose and run for his glory. The race of life has eternal consequences, not because grace is nullified by the way that we run, but because grace is verified by the way that we run. Paul's running did not nullify the purpose of grace. It verified the power of grace. This last week, I had the privilege of being in, in London with a number of different youth pastors. And these guys showed exactly that. And the way that they lived their life was incredible. Every single meal before we prayed, they would ask the waiter every single time and they would go, hey, dude, if you, if you had one problem in your life that we could pray about, what would it be? Just the boldness to ask a simple question that wasn't too crazy. If you have one problem that we can, even if you don't believe in God, just one thing that you have. And the conversations that came out of that, just living their life and having this, this boldness and the sincerity of spirit was just so mind, it was convicting. As I'm sitting there going, I haven't done that. I don't share my faith randomly with a guy at the Nike store. He's buying shoes and leading a dude to, to Christ. And I'm like, what is happening right now? That when you see those individuals in the way that they live their life, it's not, whoa, 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 it's, oh, I need that. Is your life that way? Do you reflect that manner of striving after Jesus? This sacrifice is beautiful once you realize that the work and the effort and the action that you put in is not to earn God's love, but it is coming from God's love. Run, race, box, work, strive, abound and show zeal. It is beautiful that this whole time, Paul is asking of these Corinthian Christians, sacrifice out of love. Sacrifice out of love. For us, sacrifice out of love is the only thing we have. Because Jesus himself was sacrifice out of love. Jesus himself hung on a cross, spread out horizontally and vertically, was sacrifice out of love. Jesus did not come to earth and live a perfect life and cast out demons and do miracles and proclaim the kingdom because he was trying to earn the Father's attention. No, he came and did all of those things because he had the Father's attention, because he had the Father's love, because he was obedient to the task that he was called to, and he was on a cross, naked and bruised and wounded, sacrifice out of love. If you call yourself a Christian, you have to first affirm to yourself that that sacrifice, that that goodness is the model for how you are to live the rest of your life, that life is not about self-expression, is not about you just telling the world how you are and the litany of choices that you are afforded. It is you have given your life up for the sake of others and sacrificial love is exactly what he has called you to. And that's what it looks like to be a runner running the race. So Paul is calling you to. This is what I would ask of us as well. Run the race, be disciplined, love Jesus, 
Do it with joy. Remember that the Spirit is what you are keeping in step with. Run the race and do the work. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity today. And as we sit and as we just think about these words of how you are challenging our hearts of, of slothfulness and sometimes of laziness, of sitting back and just relaxing, that God, you would call us to more. That the action is not to earn your love, but it is coming from your love to go and spread that to the nations and to the people around us, to our workplaces, to our family, that eventually that those individuals would not see our lives as a stumbling block, but as something attractive to move them closer and deeper into the kingdom. We thank you for all the blessings and all the promises and all the mercy and all the grace that you've afforded to us, God, that we would live our, live our life in such a way that reflects the goodness of who you are. I pray that you would do much through us in this time. In Jesus' name we want to pray, amen.